right. Well, I'll say good morning again for all those who weren't in here during the welcome. Uh, glad that you're with us again today. We're continuing a sermon series called Emotionally Healthy Discipleship. We started this uh, the Sunday after Easter, and we're planning on wrapping this up probably the end of May, and maybe, Lord willing, one final Sunday in June. Uh, I'm going to ask you to open your Bibles to John chapter 8 and Exodus chapter 20. Those will be kind of our kickoff main text, kind of the launching pad for this sermon. Uh, but because we're in a topical series, we'll be in several places. But Exodus 8, John, uh, yeah, Exodus 20 and John chapter 8 is where I want you to turn to. I want to acknowledge again um, Larry Rosebond and Aletha and Danny and Jackie. Thank you for being willing to serve this congregation as shepherds. That's something that uh, we asked all of you to begin praying about in early March. I preached a few sermons on what an elder is, what a character of an elder should be, and so we initiated this time. Thank you for all those who thought, thought about this, who you would nominate, your prayers, and, and any of the time that you put into this as well. So we're thankful for, to be moving in this direction as a church. So a few weeks ago, I flew into Los Angeles, California, and I took great pride in the fact that I did not have to check a bag. Anybody else do that when you fly? Like, I would just, just carry on. I fit everything into my backpack or my bag. Uh, I got on the flight. We landed. I was one of the first ones off the plane. I was proud of the fact that I didn't have to go downstairs to baggage claim. I just went downstairs and out the airport, went to the, the shuttle pickup area. If you've ever flown, you go and you find a bus, they take you to your rent car place. So I was renting a car from a place called Fox Car Rental. No offense if anybody happens to own that company or work there, but don't rent a car from Fox Car Rental. Uh, you could tell as soon as they pulled up on the bus, like, ooh, this place doesn't look, it's kind of rough. So I got on the bus, they took me about a 10-minute drive to the rental place. I can still get my backpack and my bag with me. I go, I stand in about a 45-minute line. At this point, I'm kind of dragging my bag alongside me. That's a long line to stand in. But finally, I, I, it's my turn. I go to the lady behind the desk. I give her my information. I'm going to get my rent car. And she said, oh, I'm sorry, sir. Your reservation's been canceled. I was like, what do you mean it's been canceled? I, I booked this thing a month ago or three weeks, whatever it was. She said, we, do, we don't take debit cards. And you need a credit card. And I was like, I booked it with this debit card, and you accepted the reservation, why have you canceled it now? So I'm going back and forth with her, but basically she's not going to budge. She said, hey, there's some car rental businesses down the road. You can go there if you would like. So I was dejected. There was nothing that I could do. I had to take my two bags, my backpack and my bag, and I had to leave that place. Uh, I was a little disoriented. I was frustrated. I, there was a little bit of panic that started to settle in. So I left the Fox car rental place. I took a deep breath. I was like, I'm going to walk down the road and try to find these other businesses that she was talking about. At some point, as I'm walking with my backpack on and my other bag strapped around my shoulders, I realized I'm not the only guy with a beard walking around with a backpack in this part of downtown Los Angeles. But it looked, they looked a little different than I did. You know, just maybe they looked like they'd been out there for longer. And that's when it dawned on me, like, this could be kind of dangerous. And this may not end very well. That's when panic really started to settle in. I found the car rental places. I was looking at all the signs. It looked like something from New York City in the 1970s. It looked, they looked old. They looked shady. So I picked the least shadiest looking car rental place. I walked in. I'm sweating. I got my bags. This guy at the front desk, I think he could tell 
that I was pretty disheveled, so he called me over. He said he's going to give me a good price, and he charged me a lot of money. I think he took advantage of the situation. Then he sent me out back, and I took a picture. This was uh, the car lot that he sent me to. I was in a back alley with a stranger waiting for somebody to bring my car rental to me. It's about 45 minutes of standing there. And at that point, I'm thinking, I don't know what just happened or what's about to happen, but what I did realize is that was the bag I had, and then I had my backpack on my shoulders. Like, that bag was really starting to get heavy. When I left the house that morning, it wasn't that heavy. When I boarded the plane, it wasn't that heavy. But the longer I carried that heavy load, the heavier it got. You ever been in a situation like that when you're traveling? doesn't feel that bad when you leave. But that weight can really start to do something to you, not just to your shoulders, but to how you feel physically and really emotionally. So I think about that compared to internally how a lot of us feel. Maybe some of you feel like you're carrying the weight of the world on your shoulders. And I probably could guess, and maybe if we're having a one-on-one conversation, that some of you have been carrying around a weight on your own soul for a long time. And maybe you, you know that. And you just don't know how to put it into words. Maybe you don't even realize it. But there could be a weight from something from your past. It could be from your family of origin. It could be from a a broken relationship from your past. It could be from abuse. It could be from a number of things. But there's this weight, this kind of invisible weight that we carry around with us on our own soul. And the idea behind today's lesson, or one of the ideas, is we cannot change what we are unaware of. So if we are carrying around emotional baggage, we may call it, or a weight on our soul, or it feels like we're carrying the world on our shoulders, we need to identify what that is because we can't change what we're unaware of. The theme today is break the power of the past. This is the sub-theme for the overall theme of emotionally healthy discipleship. The idea behind it is in order to move forward with Jesus, we need to go backwards. So for the next few minutes, we're going we're gonna to look at Scripture, but we're going to go backwards into our family of origin. We're going to go backwards and just kind of think about some things that have gone on in your life to bring you to where you are today. And hopefully, maybe Lord willing, with the Holy Spirit being present with us, He'll help identify in you, is there something that has a stronghold on you that you need to break, forward, break free from in order to move forward with Jesus? So I'm going to start with this passage in John chapter 8. Uh, This is probably my favorite verse in the Bible. Uh, If you were with us last June, when I did an anxiety series, I I spent a whole sermon on John chapter 7 and 8. And I really landed on John 8, 14. So I've already preached it. I've done senior talks on Senior Sunday when I do the banquet, speak at the banquet. I've used this verse. You might have heard me use this before. It's one of my favorite verses because I think it speaks to a deep truth of Jesus' life and to our own lives as well. I'll give you some context, because I think context is important, even though we're not doing a study of the Gospel of John. Uh, Jesus has gone to Jerusalem. He's traveled there. And while he's in Jerusalem, from the crowds, from the religious leaders, and from everybody, they're questioning who Jesus is. His identity is what under interrogation. I called it the identity interrogation chapter. Well, just one simple verse, John 8 and verse 14, what Jesus says to the Pharisees. He said, even if I testify on my own behalf, my testimony is valid, for I know where I came from and I know where I'm going. But you have no idea where I come from or where I'm going. 
I've fallen in love with this verse because not only does it speak that deep truth to Jesus' life, it has implications for our own life. And I think if we're dwelling in this text, if we're slowing down and we're taking a look at this, it should inspire us to ask this question of ourselves. Where have we come from and where are we going? Or ask yourself, where have I come from and where am I going? So in order to know where you've come from, you've got to look a little bit into your past, a little bit into your family. As I've been in ministry now for many years, I've dabbled in and studied family systems theory. As a minister, uh, one of the things that I, uh, that I take very seriously, and I, I'm honored to be able to do this, but I get to intersect with your different family units, whether it's through weddings or funerals or just through ministry in general. So I've studied family systems theory, and one of the core principles behind family systems theory is that the, probably the most powerful influence on who you are as a human being is your family of origin. The people that raised you, the people that you spent the most time with in childhood, in your teenage years, that has profoundly shaped who you are and why you are the way you are. Uh, if I'm ever conducting a wedding ceremony, and I'm doing the premarital counseling. This is something that, that I, a session that I've integrated into the premarital counseling. We're going to talk about family of origin, at least for one session. We need to know as God brings two separate lives together in marriage and joins them together as one, you need to know where you've come from so that you can know where you're going. As a staff, at the end of last year and early this year, was separately, individually, we we, we studied a book, and then we went to a trusted counselor, and we did something called a genogram. This is where you kind of map out your family history, and as a staff, after we did the genogram separately, we came together, and we presented to each other our own family history, which helps us, and that's a vulnerable thing to do, I don't know if you've ever done that, but... It helped us understand why we are the way we are, what we bring into our marriages, and what we bring into our ministry. This is just a sample of what a genogram would look like. This is not my family. This is not anybody from our staff. It's not their family, so don't look into it thinking, I think I know who that is. This is just something I got off the internet. But this is an example of what a genogram would look like. You would map out your mom, your dad, or anybody that raised you, any siblings that you have, grandparents, great-grandparents, aunts, uncles, cousins. You map it all out, and then you're labeling, okay, uh, there's a divorce over here, there was an affair over here, there's death over here, and you just kind of start to look at the family tree, and each line is a diagram representing the relationship that you have with these family members and they have with each other. And then once you do all of that, and it takes a few hours, you can take a step back, and then you kind of see not just yourself, but you see generational patterns. Or as one author put it, he said, you can see the cards that you've been dealt. You know, it may not be your fault, but it is your responsibility. The purpose of looking at your family history or looking at a genogram is not to blame anybody. We always need to be reminded of that. When we talk about family of origin, it's not, hey, I'm going to place blame on parents or grandparents or siblings. It's just to understand you and your own worldview and to help us understand generational patterns. I don't know if you've ever done something like that for your own family, or maybe if you've thought it through. But there are generational patterns that get passed down uh, from one generation to the next, and, and you've probably been affected by generations 
that have gone on before you that you never even knew. Some of those can be positive, what we would call positive transmission. Uh, I used a passage last week, and I'll read it again from 2 Timothy chapter 1. This is something that Paul said to Timothy. I read it last week on Mother's Day during the welcome to try to celebrate mothers, but I think it applies here as well. As Paul tells Timothy, I am reminded of your sincere faith, which first lived in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and now I am persuaded lives in you also. What Paul is trying to get Timothy to see is, hey, celebrate the fact that the reason that you have faith imprinted deeply into your soul is because you saw it modeled for you in your grandmother and in your mother, and now it lives in you. That's our goal. That's our goal as a family. That's our goal as a church is to help each other pass down the faith from generation to generation. You know, Jamie read that passage earlier today in our scripture reading time from Deuteronomy chapter 6. Impress these things on your children. Talk about them when you walk up and down the road. The idea behind our families is that we pass down the faith. So there are some positive things that we can pass along. Some things that are generational patterns are what I would just call neutral. Some of your, what you prefer to do on your vacations or holiday times like Christmas or Thanksgiving or some of your hobbies or skills that you have, you probably picked up on a lot of that from your family of origin and it may be neither good nor bad. Now, what I'm trying to land on here is that there are also some negative legacies that can be passed down from generation to generation. And don't hear me wrong here, I'm not trying to say that every family has some dark secret sin in your past, but if you paused, you looked at your generational patterns within your own family tree, you may have to be honest and ask yourself, are there any negative legacies? Are there any sin patterns that have been passed down through the generations and now lives in you, like a script that you follow that was handed to you that your parents or your grandparents might have followed that runs contrary to what it means to follow Jesus. You think about alcoholism or addiction or marriage issues or distrusting authority or unresolved conflict, you name it, there are sin patterns that sometimes are passed down from generation to generation. Is this a result of nature or nurture? Hard to tell. Is it because it's in your DNA, it's in your genetics, and you just can't help it, or at least like you're more prone towards an addiction or something like that? Or is it because of nurture, because that's the environment that you grew up in, so it just becomes a part of you? Which one is it? Maybe it's both. The Bible doesn't really speak to it. But the Bible does talk about an idea of generational blessing and generational punishment. Now I want to draw your attention to Exodus 20. That's another one of those passages that I mentioned from the beginning. Context is important. I know we're not doing a scriptural study on the book of Exodus right now, but this is the chapter where God gives Moses the Ten Commandments. And what I'm about to read to you, and hopefully you'll follow along in your own copy, is the second commandment out of the ten. God says to Moses, You shall not make for yourself an idol, whether in the form of anything that is in heaven above, or that is on the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. No idols. And it could stop there and move on to commandment three, but it doesn't. There's some commentary that goes along with this commandment. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. And this is what I underlined in my notes here. Punishing children for the iniquity of parents 
to the third and fourth generation of those who reject me. Now that sounds really scary. I read that and I think, man, would God really punish my children or grandchildren or great-grandchildren for my sins? And then verse 6, it says, But showing steadfast love to the thousandth generation of those who love me and keep my commandments. Well, I like that a little bit better. If we're faithful, if we pass down the faith, well, then maybe God will bless future generations. And often when we think blessing future generations, we just think financially. But this is talking about spiritual blessings. Well, what do we do with this passage? Is God really going to punish future generations for the sins of their parents? Because that's what it says here. Well, let's look at this passage in light of a few other scriptures, and then we'll go back to this idea of kind of what it is for maybe your past that you need to break free from. So just a couple quick references. John chapter 9, verse 1 through 3, in the Gospels, uh, you know, Jesus is going around with this healing ministry, and he's healing plenty of people, and there's a blind man that he meets along the side of the road. In verse 2 of John chapter 9, Jesus' disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? The theology that Jesus' disciples have is this guy's being punished probably because of his parents' sins, right? That has to be the case. That's what their theology is. That's the question that they're asking Jesus. But Jesus responds and says, neither this man nor his parents. It's like he dismisses the idea of generational punishment. And Jesus said, this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Jesus bypasses the thought of generational punishment. He says, no, this is for God's glory. Jesus goes on and heals this man. You keep reading John chapter 9. And this blind man who now can see gives probably the best one-sentence testimony of anybody in the Gospels. Later, when he's brought before the religious leaders, he will say, all I know is I was blind and now I see. Some people say that summarizes the Gospel of John right there. So Jesus says, this guy's blind so that the work of God can be displayed in him. But dismisses the generational punishment idea. Another passage back in the Old Testament, Ezekiel chapter 18 and verse 20. It says, the one who sins is the one who will die. The child will not share in the guilt of the parent, nor the parent share the guilt of the child. Now that verse in Ezekiel 18, 20, and I just read the first part of that, that is a lot more comforting to me. Ezekiel, this prophet, is saying, no, the child will be punished for the child's sin, the parents will be punished for the parents' sin, but child, the, child, the children will not be punished for their parents' sin. So it just makes Exodus 20 sound a lot better. So you keep those examples in mind, and we'll go back to Exodus 20. So how do we understand the second commandment and the commentary that goes with it? The children will be punished for the sins of their parents to the third or fourth generation. Well, here's a couple of things to keep in mind. In that ancient world, it was really common to have three to four generations living together in the same household. I don't know what your household looks like, but it's me and my wife and my two children. I can't imagine the thought of bringing another family into our home to live there. Uh, man, we need our space. But back then, and maybe if you do that, that's awesome. But I need, I like my own, my own bathroom. This wasn't in my notes. I shouldn't, I shouldn't go off on these things. I pray about that kind of stuff before I preach, and then I say weird things sometimes. But anyways, in the ancient world, you know, multi, you know, three or four generations living together in the same household, what that means is they're around each other really often, 
So the possibility of influencing and affecting three to four generations is right there in the same household. Does that make sense? So that's a possibility. And then this one commentator, Kevin DeYoung, who wrote this book on the Ten Commandments, he puts it this way, the children share in their father's punishment or your parents' punishment because they share in their father's sins. So the punishment idea continues if you continue in the same pattern of sin. So you're not punished unfairly, especially if you line that up with what Ezekiel 18.20 says. You're not punished unfairly for your grandfather's sins. You're punished if you continue in the same sin pattern. As one Old Testament scholar said, another word could be translated, instead of punishment, it could be tends to be repeated. And that is true. What we see modeled for us, we tend to repeat, whether we do it unconsciously or we're aware of it. Abraham's family is a great example of this. I know if you're looking closely, it says Joseph's family tree, but Joseph comes from Abraham. So a quick overview of the book of Genesis. In Genesis chapter 12, the focus is narrowed on Abraham. He's called by God. He's going to be a blessing to all nations. He's going to have many descendants. And from Genesis chapter 12 to the end of the book, you see Abraham's family. That's the focus. And Abraham was blessed by God. Abraham was faithful. Abraham passed down faith through the generations. But there's also some of those sinful patterns, some of those negative legacies that you see a little bit in Abraham, and then you see it repeated. So Abraham twice lied about Sarah being his wife in Genesis 12 and Genesis 20. And you may think, well, maybe it was harmless. But then you see that repeated in Genesis 26 and Abraham's son, Isaac, lies about Rebekah. It's like the same lie. Okay, and then you get to Abraham's uh, grandsons, Jacob and Esau. Jacob is a deceiver. Jacob deceives his father. He's known as, as, as a deceiver and he lives his life on the run. Then Jacob grows up, he has children, and his children lie to him. They fake a funeral and lie to him about Joseph's death. So if you just took a step back, looked at the bigger picture, you're like, whoa, there's a pattern of lying that goes three to four generations. Maybe it seemed harmless at the beginning, but then it turns into some pretty big, long, multi-decade lies. You can see the same thing in favoritism. Look at the way that they parented. And, you know, Isaac favors Esau, Jacob, I mean, uh, Rebekah favors Jacob, and then Jacob grows up, becomes a dad, and he favors Joseph and Benjamin. There's patterns there. You look at the brothers that grew up together, and then they, they're cut off from one another for years at times. You see poor intimacy in marriages and how that's repeated. The, the idea is, this is not to bash Abraham's family, Father Abraham, we have a VBS song. We know, I think Abraham was a faithful man. He's mentioned in Hebrews 11. But there's also some patterns that you see that are repeated through the generations in Abraham's family. Negative legacies, sin patterns. So what I'm asking you to do is maybe look within your own self. Is there anything from your own family of origin, generational sin that's been passed down that you need to break free from in order to follow Jesus in the present? Well, how would you know? You cannot change what you're unaware of. So if you've never taken the time to think about this or to do some introspection or, or to do a, a genogram or something like that, you may not know. You may not even be aware of it. And at the same time, some of you may be aware of it 
And you may be making an excuse for yourself just saying, hey, that's how my dad was. That's how my granddad was. That's just who we are as a family. Now, one of my favorite quotes, and I share this with pre, in premarital counseling sessions as well, is your past may explain you, but it doesn't excuse you. And you've heard it. You've seen it in TV shows and movies, and you've heard it's inspirational stories. It's possible to break the pattern, break the generational pattern, if that's what you need to do, if that's what Christ is calling you to do. So that weight that's on your soul that maybe you didn't realize it until it's named, like, yeah, there is something that's been weighing on me for a long time. Part of that could come from, it could stem from family of origin issues. But it's not limited to just family of origin. Anything from the past may be weighing down on you, and, and there's a number of those things. You could have something weighing on you from your church of origin. If we had time, I could tell stories of people that I know that use bad experiences growing up in their churches as an excuse to no longer even attend church or be a part of a church family. So there's some scars or some weight that they carry from their childhood that they just haven't dealt with. Or it could be a misunderstanding about God, something that you need to unlearn in order to move forward with Jesus. It could be that in the past, you were betrayed by a friend or somebody that you were close with. And when I say betrayed, they could have maybe just, they were close with you and then they became distant. I don't know, but the story that you subconsciously tell yourself is you can't trust anybody. Anybody like that? You don't have to raise your hand, but you think, I struggle with trusting people. And I believe this lie that nobody is trustworthy. And if you went to the root of it, you would say, oh yeah, this thing happened 25 years ago. And ever since then, I believe this lie that you can't trust anyone. Or it could just be a negative comment that somebody made towards you, a teacher, a coach, a family member, a friend. could just be one comment that they made when they were in a bad mood one day, and that became a script for your life, a lie that you continued to believe. Again, I could tell you many stories of people who have been greatly damaged for decades because somebody just made one comment. It could be sin in your life that you've never confessed or maybe sin that you have confessed, but you struggle with believing whether or not God has forgiven you or maybe you struggle with forgiving yourself. So the idea of breaking the power of the past is learning to go backwards in order to go forward, to identify some of those things that may be continuing to weigh on your soul and to finally part ways with them, finally take that weight off. Uh, we've all seen the cartoon strip of like a devil on one shoulder and an angel on another shoulder. You've seen these. And usually, I guess what that represents is like we have these competing voices, some that are positive influences, some that are negative influences. Well, from an, another writer that I've read, uh, I like to think about them as giants on your shoulders. And this author said that, you know, like a church like this, a church family, we all walk into the room we have these invisible giants on our shoulders that follow us. And so the way I was thinking about it with my own life as a preacher, uh, most Sunday mornings, I have to be aware of the giants on my shoulders. And here's what I mean by that. This is just an example. So I have friends from my past life. Childhood, high school, college, church camps, different churches I've worked at, different places that I've worked. I know a variety of people even in the East Texas area, who they don't know each other. Anybody else like that? 
And then you get on Facebook. I have to limit myself to about a minute and a half each day of Facebook. I scroll through, and it's a weird mix of all these people from my past. And some of these people from my past that I would still consider friends are believers. Some are no longer believers, but maybe they grew up in the church context with me or church camp with me and they've walked away from the faith. Some are believers and are very opinionated and are very vocal about their opinions. And I take all that mixture and when I prepare a sermon and I step in here on a Sunday morning, sometimes those people from the past listen to my sermons And I subconsciously think, I want them to approve of what I'm teaching. That's a giant on my shoulder. And then on the other shoulder, there could be teachers from my past. Bible class teachers, Bible professors, people that I've ministered alongside of, people that I've served in missions with. Now these people that I work with in the past, or maybe even in the present, Some of them are conservative. Some of them are progressive. Some of them have this view. Some of them have that view. They're this passion. And when I come to prepare a sermon and I preach it, there's a possibility they may get online and listen to my sermon. So there's a part of me that thinks, well, I want them to approve of what I'm preaching of. And I went through a time period where I didn't even realize it, but I would walk into the room with these invisible giants on my shoulders, like weighing me down, and they... I gave them more power because without even realizing it, I was seeking their approval. And there had to come a point where it's like, hey, I care about what you think, but you're no longer a giant on my shoulder. I'm going to take that weight off because that's unnecessary. So really what I'm challenging you to do today is to think about who or who it could be, or maybe what, it could be an event or an experience from your past or the giants on your own shoulders. Those invisible giants that you carry with you into the room, you carry with you into your workplace or into your family life that are there, and maybe they've just become so invisible you're not even aware of it, but it still weighs you down. So who or what from your past has a hold on you? And what does it mean to break the power of the past? To grow into becoming an emotionally healthy disciple might mean that you need to go backward in order to go forward. As Jesus said in John 8, and verse 14, I know where I've come from, and I know where I'm going. Was there anybody that has ever walked this earth that's been more intentional and driven than Jesus Christ? But He said, I know where I've come from, and I know where I'm going. He knew what it means to go backward in order to go forward. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. There's an idea of being in Christ, of being made new. Paul goes on in that same verse to say, The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. The old has passed away, in a sense of dying to whatever that is from the past. There may be something from your past that you need to break free from. And maybe you're carrying those heavy weights with you today. Maybe you just need to be reminded that Jesus said, hey, my burden is light and easy. Come to me, you who are weary and heavy burden, and I will give you rest. Jesus invites it. He welcomes you to take that weight off of your shoulders, off of your soul, and to give it to him. And when you feel like the weight of the world is on your shoulder and there's so much pressure, remember, 
that Jesus actually took the weight of the world on His shoulders. He took the sin of the world on His shoulders to the cross so that you don't have to carry that weight anymore. If we can help you today, if we can pray for you, if you want to come to know Christ and take that weight of the world off your own shoulders and give it to Christ, and we'll have elders around the room. I'll be up front, an elder will be up front with me. Uh, we're going to sing a song. Come talk to us if you need to. We'd be glad to receive you. Let's stand and continue to sing.